Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to the host of the Fear Free Childbirth podcast, Alexia Leachman. She's telling us about the loss of her mom and how her coming back journey helped her find her heart's work, helping women unblock their fears of pregnancy and childbirth. Also on the show today, I'm answering a listener question about the most common challenge in overcoming grief, and I'll compare grief to an involuntary scavenger hunt. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so stoked to be here with you this week. This week's guest actually inspired the top of the show today, and it's about a euphemism that often accompanies grief. And that is grief being a road, a journey, or a path. Whatever word people use, and even I use these when I talk about grief on the podcast and on Facebook and on Instagram, uh, people like to describe grief as being some kind of quest or some kind of journey that takes time and includes discovery and involves going from one destination to another. And in their own ways, each of these descriptors, road, journey, path, are fitting for grief. But this week, as I was editing my interview with Alexia Leachman, a different and a more uh, fitting phrase came to mind for me. And that is that grief is like an involuntary scavenger hunt. So when loss happens, when someone dies, or we break up with somebody or get broken up with, or when we receive a diagnosis that changes our lives, or we move or change jobs or lose a pet or a child, we get launched onto this journey this path, this road, this involuntary scavenger hunt that we didn't ask to be on. We don't ask to be a part of this. That's the involuntary nature of it. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves seeking and scrambling and searching for a new normal and for who we really are after this big major loss and what there is left in our worlds to cling to as truth, what hasn't evaporated. Uh, Grief doesn't really care whether or not we actually want to start searching to go on the scavenger hunt, but because grief happens, we're, we're practically required to. And, and we get some clues along the way in this. Our loved ones and our families and our spiritual teachers and our intuitions can give us some idea of what to look for next. It's kind of like having clues on a scavenger hunt, but a lot of times the clues are are vague or cause us to hit a dead end or end up not being all that useful in the long run. And and I'm coming to you today, I'm speaking to this today to tell you that all of that is okay. All of that is okay. After my mom died, I had some involuntary scavenger hunts to go on. There were really big ones, like big obvious ones, like addressing grief itself. That's actually how I discovered the grief recovery method and became trained as a specialist there. But I also did some weird and some random stuff to try and find my way through what I was going through. I thought I might like to write a book at some point, so I spent $700 on a writing course that I only halfway finished. 
I went to a day spa and got my chakras balanced, which led me to the book Women Who Run With the Wolves, which I talked about in episode four with Iris Rankin. Uh, I tried starting two different businesses. One was a vegan cooking blog, and another was a program to help college grads navigate their first 12 months of adulting. I joined a choir and a band, thinking doing music like I used to as a kid would bring me some joy. In the same vein, doing things I used to like to do as a kid, I also started reading comic books again after my mom died. I learned to meditate, which was a a really big lesson for me in take what works and discard the rest. And uh, I did a weird exercise where I spoke to God about what had happened to me. And kind of in another miscellaneous vein, I, I started painting again. I painted like I used to when I was a kid. I just... I mean, this is all kind of in a random order, grief growers, but I just, I just tried stuff on. I just tried stuff on. I was on an involuntary scavenger hunt. I knew while I was doing all these things, I knew like most grievers know that I could not put back my life the way that it used to be. So I was trying on and testing out and experimenting with every random thing that came my way to see. Um, I don't know. Does this work? Does this feel good to me? Do I want to go in this direction next? I was following leads of spirituality and art and music and feminism and play and food, and they were all rooted in my grief somehow or rooted in me somehow. And some helped and some didn't. And again, I'm here today to tell you that that's okay. You don't have to find what you're looking for the first time. You'll hear Alexia talk this week about all the random things that she tried to do to address her grief, and I have to tell you, pretty much every griever does this, whether they realize it or not. This this searching, the seeking, the finding, and the aftermath of grief, trying to find footing again, or experimenting with a new way, or being, or stepping into new shoes to test out if they're worth walking in. We don't really get a choice as to whether or not we get to go on this involuntary scavenger hunt, but we get some choice, and this is the cool part, we get some choice in what we want to explore as a result of our grief. We get some choice into the type of reworked or reimagined life that we want to create for ourselves. And it's not... The bitter truth of it all is that it's not all fun. We want our old life back. In the midst of all this searching and seeking and finding, we want our old life back. But here we go. Here we go anyway following these threads, following these weird paths and maps that our loved ones have left us with. So if you're grieving, if you're going on this involuntary scavenger hunt, here's some ideas for you this week. Find a community in your area of similar grievers. The grief recovery method is a great tool for this, or just search grief support groups, your location, see what pops up. Ask yourself what your loved one was passionate about. Can you explore their hobbies or great loves? This is actually what led me to spirituality in my own search, although what I ended up keeping uh, looks a lot different from what my mom uh, practiced in her life. Try something you've always felt was quote-unquote not like you to try, whether it's a sport or a class or a style of clothing. Try it on now and see if it resonates with you. If it does or it doesn't, you have learned something about your post-loss self. Then you can try something different. One of my favorites is from author Gretchen Rubin, and I touched on this a little bit, and that is explore things that used to make you happy as a child. 
For me, this was going to the library with my mom uh, and doing music and painting. So I actually got myself a library card and started going to the library again. It's a pretty big part of my life now. I also got my piano. I have a piano in my home now that I play. Be open to signs about new paths to explore. The universe and your friends and your family are are pretty good about dropping hints in your lap. You'll hear a funny story later, again from Alexia, about the voice of God. And and that uh, that prompts me to ask at the top of the show today, what is weirdly or unexpectedly calling you? I know, I know, you don't always want to be on this involuntary scavenger hunt, grief growers. It would be so much easier and so much simpler and so much less work to have our old lives back with our loved ones or our partners or healthy or in our old jobs or in our old homes. We knew and know who we are and what we want in those environments and with those people and in those circumstances. But if we're going to be thrust are forced on this involuntary journey, the best we can do for ourselves is to try and steer and to find some landmarks along the way. I want to know this week, grief growers, where are you on your involuntary scavenger hunt? Are you just starting out? Are you deep in the thick of it? Do you think you've stumbled upon something? What have you discovered that you like or dislike about the life that you're building post-loss? Are you making career moves or have you picked up a hobby? Join me live this Monday, October 30th on Facebook Live at 1 o'clock Chicago time. You can find my Facebook page at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide. Next up, I'll answer a listener question about the most common obstacle in grief. Savannah asks, what's the most common challenge involving overcoming grief? And my short answer to this, Savannah, is getting started by acknowledging something has happened. Getting started with your grief by acknowledging something has happened. So for me, in a lot of the work that I've witnessed, the hardest part of overcoming grief, quote unquote overcoming, I don't really like to use that word too often, but the most common challenge is acknowledging that your grief exists in the first place that something has happened to upset the life that was familiar to you and that you need to grieve and process to find your way again. These can be things as big as a death, a divorce, a major diagnosis, but can also be smaller and quote unquote more everyday losses like like the loss of a job or a job change or promotion or the birth of a child or the transition from a child into different grades, different type of schooling or things like moving, moving homes, moving apartments, transitioning uh, from seasons even. Acknowledging that something has happened to trigger grief in your world, that is the most common challenge in grief. And it's hard for a lot of reasons. It's hard because admitting grief is happening is is just the first step, quote unquote, just the first step. It's the assessing the damage phase of grief. And we can't really do anything about our pain or our wounds or our hurts or our concerns just yet. We're just looking at them and saying, ha, this exists. This is a thing for me. This is really painful. Oh my God, I'm going through something. 
And acknowledging grief is hard too, because after you assess the damage, you kind of have to do something about it, whether that's counseling or reading or joining group or taking steps to make something out of it. To acknowledge your grief means that you have to continue to change that familiar pattern of behavior that has already been upset in some way. You have to make things more different than they already are to start healing. And that's really crazy and can feel really uncertain. So for example, not only did you lose your mom, but now you have to start going to a therapist. Or not only did your dog die, but you're attending a support group every Thursday night. Or not only did your child move up grade levels in school, but your younger child is now asking what's going to happen to me when I move up grade levels. It's new experiences that you have to incorporate into your already new life that is happening as a result of major patterns and routines and normalcy and familiarity changing. And finally, I think acknowledging grief and getting started with it is in itself kind of this final admission that things cannot go back to the way that they were. And that's really hard. That's really hard. Acknowledging that something did happen that's really torn you to pieces and that reality has permanently and forever changed that's really hard. And that's really hard, especially when your heart is in this fragile place. If you're listening to this podcast, I bet you have lost something. I say it in the very first episode of this show of coming back. I say you're here because you've lost something. I've lost something too. If you're walking into a space where you're admitting and acknowledging your pain for the very first time, if you're taking this most challenging step of grief recovery, know that you are safe in this space, that this is a good place to put it, to say it out loud for the first time. I'm here. Thank you so much for your question this week, Savannah. If you're looking for a safe space to share your story and start finding your way through grief, please join my private Facebook group called The Grief Growers Garden. You can also ask your own question to be featured on the show by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can find both of these contacts and a link to the Facebook group in the show notes. Next up, we'll talk to Alexia Leachman about the loss of her mom and how her involuntary scavenger hunt led her to the launch of her business and podcast called Fear Free Childbirth. Alexia Leachman is a therapeutic coach, an author, and the host of the award-nominated Fear Free Childbirth podcast. Alexia was tocophobic, having intense fears of pregnancy and childbirth, and overcame her extreme fears to have two fear-free home births. Now she helps women to overcome their fears of pregnancy and childbirth so they can look forward to their births with confidence. Alexia has helped thousands of women worldwide to shed fear and claim their positive birth experience through her private sessions, her online programs and products, and of course, her podcast. Her second book, Fearless Birthing, is out soon. Alexia appears regularly in the press, TV, radio, and online, including the BBC, Sky, and ABC, and has been featured in places like HuffPost, Mail Online, Psychologies, and U.S. News. She's the proud mom of two feisty young girls who hate wearing dresses, and there is always a piece of dark chocolate within arm's reach of her desk. Welcome to Coming Back. I would love for you to start us off with your lost story. The lost story that defined me really is the loss of my mother. And that happened when I was 
just turning 30. So it happened for me way too soon in my life and hers for her to go. And it all happened very quickly because she passed with cancer and she had cancer when I was a teenager, you know, so she was battling cancer when I was 15 and she had breast cancer and had breasts removed. And and so, we, you know, we, we were lucky that she didn't go at that point and, and it came back um, and we found out that it came back quite quickly. Her health hadn't been good for many years, but we just couldn't know. We just couldn't know what the, what on earth was going on. The doctors didn't seem to be able to find any answers for us. And then suddenly we found out that she had nine tumours in her brain and six weeks later she was gone. So it was a very quick and brutal part, you know, transition from having her there to suddenly she was gone. And I completely spiralled out of um, control. And one thing that really made my experience quite tough was that my, both my mum, because of the, I was, a, she was a single mum, so she raised both of us. And because I was the oldest of the two, then I acted like her, her buddy, her friend. And so there's a, a thing that's known within psychological circles um, called a condition that's called enmeshing. And it's when the parent and the, the sibling or the, the, the child are very close, too close than they should be for a, a parent-child relationship. So, you know, I'd get consulted on what colour we're going to decorate the lounge, what car we're going to get, where we're going to go on holiday. You know, I'd sort of help her to raise my brother kind of thing. So when she left, it was very much a part of me went with her. Um, and I completely, I, I literally, a part of me just disappeared that day. And I very much spiralled out of control. So I was, you know, leading up to that, I was in a very good position. I'm on the outside looking very confident, very sure of myself. Um, yeah, good job. You know, it's all all that good stuff. And, and, and suddenly my whole world collapsed, wasn't there. And so I called into question everything about who I was, what was important, why I was here, what was what was the point. And so I was very much in a spiral, downward spiral. And I think I must have spent, you know, a good year in the fetal position, just sobbing my eyes out and just feeling sort of that raw pain that you get with grief. And and I realised, you know, this carried on for a bit. And I, I got back into work and it was it was not an easy journey because I just find myself being sidelined by grief, uh, you know, just crying just without warning. And I realised that things were really reaching a low point for me when I needed to take a couple of weeks holiday at work. And and I, I love travelling and I absolutely adore travelling. And um and I realised I didn't want to go travelling because I'd I'd be stuck with me, and I didn't want to be with me, and 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 what this was a real issue. And at the point at that moment in time, Eat, Pray, Love was a huge bestseller, and I I just read it and absolutely adored it. And I I remember thinking, I need what she's got, what she had on the ashram. I need somebody to just lock me up with my demons so I can face this because. There's nothing else that's going to do this for me. And I was looking at retreats, you know, a week-long retreat with nice nutritious food and a couple of meditations and a bit of yoga. And I was like, uh-uh, that's not going to do it for me. I need something really hardcore to really go deep and sort this out. Because if I don't, I'm just going to hit drugs or not want to end it all. Like, I literally couldn't find a way out of this because I felt so low. And I came across something that was pretty much not my saviour, but it got me out of the hole. And that was, I discovered something called the Hoffman process, which is like an eight day residential therapeutic retreat for want of a better word. And that was my, that was the thing that got me out of my hole of grief and, and, and set me on track again to being a person that wasn't affected by it so badly. Um, so yeah, I think the, that was, that was, 
my journey of going through that, which I think it was a very dark two years for me, that period of time. I totally get this feeling of, I use this visual a lot of this huge tree just like being uprooted and all the roots yeah. and the gross stuff down there is like dangling and it won't go back into the place where it got pulled out from, but there's really nowhere else to put it. And so you're like, what am I supposed to do when literally everything has been upended? Yeah. How did you discover Eat, Pray, Love? And how did you discover the Hoffman process? Like how did these things come to you? I have no idea how Eat, Pray, Love came to me, probably because it was so popular. I don't know. It was a big, you know, it's a very popular book and themes that I was very drawn to. Um, when I was going through my, you know, in the period, in the six weeks when my mum was very ill and it was, you know, it was discussed that she needed to go into palliative care and that there wasn't anything that we could be done. And my aunt just arrived, my family are from France. And so my, my aunt came in from France and she said, you need to read this. And she gave me the Tibetan book of the living and the dead. And I think I just read the dead section. I haven't read the living section to this day. And I just, I must have just consumed that book while we were sitting in the hospice, literally just at the side of her bed. So yeah, my, the beginning of my spiritual bit, you know, the Tibetan piece was planted, the seed was planted back right before she died. And so I'm sure that my antenna would have been alert at any kind of spiritual kind of book. So I think the minute Eat, Pray, Love was out, I was probably on it like a car on it, you know. Oh, sure. That makes perfect sense to me. And I'm laughing because yeah. this is not the first time that the Tibetan Book of the Living and the Dead has been mentioned on this podcast. Okay. This will actually be two weeks in a row, I think, um, oh, wow. that it's been mentioned. And this is kind of a heads up from the universe to me that like maybe I need to read that because I did not yeah. have that as a resource in the loss of my mom. Is there one memory or one day leading up to her death that you remember or that stands out more than anything else? Oh gosh, yeah, there was a moment when I I was just sitting at the side of the bed holding a hand and there was, um, I don't know if you know of Bruno Gronning, who's a German healer back in the, well, I think he was banished from Germany for going, I don't know, he's a fascinating healer. He had a huge neck because he would channel energy through his neck. But he, one of the things, one of the, he was quite an incredible person. I want to read more about him, but um I, I I was my my grandma I used to talk about him and, and she used to kind of I don't know talk to him in some way. Um he's part he's dead, you know, so I don't know how she was doing that, but she did communicate with him in some way. And one thing that he talked about very much was having this this gold beam of light connecting between two beings from their heart space. And how this is almost like something that is probably the size of a watermelon in diameter. You know, it's a really big channel of pure love, basically. And I had that experience with her in the hospice where I literally, I, I swear I could have touched it. There was this this very powerful golden light that was just, just coming straight into my heart, just from her. And it was just, I don't know how long, I, I would have been in a timeless space when that happened. I, I couldn't tell you what was going on. It's just a very clear memory and a very clear feeling of just pure love that happened in that moment. And when I've asked about that kind of experience since, it's like, yeah, that was, she was basically just kind of communicating in the only way she could, the love that she had for me. So that was kind of pretty monumental. <laughs> I'm curious to know, this is kind of an Oprah question, but is it? <laughs> <laughs> but what did you know for sure in that moment? love I don't know for me love is it, it was just it's all about love um yeah well not wanted to sound like Wonder Woman but I believe in love love is the most powerful thing 
nothing is better than love. And I think it was just the un- unconditional love that she had for me as her daughter, as her, you know, that that's what I felt. And it was very un- unequivocal, very powerful. Yeah, I love that picture. I, I want to move forward next and talk about the days, months, even the two-year span after your mom's death where you're walking through this this darkness of loss, um, I'm curious to know what you wrestled with internally and externally, I guess, both with your brother and this identity of enmeshing that you talked about earlier, mm. and as well as trying to deal with the the quote unquote everyday things like your house and with work and with travel and pets. And, I mean, all these things that just come in and demand yeah. still having attention, despite the fact that you're like, don't you yeah. understand? I just lost everything. Yes. Uh, talk yeah. about that a little bit for me. So I headed up this division and was in the middle of doing a massive relaunch of a huge brand of products here in the UK with a big retailer. And it was a major project. I'd hired a big team. And also there was talk of the company that I'd migrated to being interested in selling me that portion of the business. So I was looking at doing, getting funding, investment. investment. I was, you know, there's this, there was this big stuff going on that required me and I was the one driving it. I was the one absolutely at the helm leading people through this project that was apparently not possible, but it was it was happening under my steam. And so without me being completely able to drive it, the whole thing was literally going to collapse. So this was what was going on in my workplace. And so I wasn't able to go through with the buyout that I wanted to because suddenly you know, this, my mum situation happened very quickly over a six week period and completely sidelined me. So in that time, another group of people had bought the company and they were really nasty pieces of work and they had no patience. There were no, no compassion of what I'd gone through. And I got a whiff. I was like, you know what? I'm just sensing an energy change here. So I got myself some insurance, some redundancy insurance. And within a week, I was made redundant of getting my redundancy insurance. So that my intuition was spot on. That basically paid for my bills for 12 months, which was just what I needed. <laughs> so I stopped work. I basically stopped, I think maybe three months after she died, I I, I had, I was made redundant. And I decided I just needed to do, I just needed to find myself. I, I was doing soul searching. I was I did a DJ course. I did a video production course. I did a music production course. My background's marketing. So this is all very, very different to what I was doing. You know, my background's business. So I, I explored, I, I decided to take, I did coaching. Um, I did a coaching course. You know, I was really curious. I wanted to do work with more meaning. And so I was just kind of scrabbling around. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a big DJ. I'm going to be, uh, you know, like all this kind of, like literally I was spinning out, having sort of reached a very senior level in marketing. I was like, oh, I'm going to just sack it all in and go and do some other crazy job and live on beaches and beach bars. Yay. And it's like, that's the sign of somebody that's just lost the plot, right? Really? When you look back. (laughs) (laughs) I love that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, but I was, but I was lucky I took up this insurance. So I was able to just be in bed and sob, but also do these other things that enabled me to kind of maybe find myself again. And that's what I needed to do because I'd, I'd lost touch with who I was. I didn't know who I was, actually. I, a big part of me was my my mother. And apparently when you lose your husband or your partner, a lot of people say that they lose, they feel like half of them is gone because you make so much room in you for them that when they go, half of you feels like it's gone. And I really felt like that's what happened to me, that some of me went and I had to kind of rebuild who I was. But that meant knowing what I was made of, what knowing what what pieces I need to find to fill the gaps, you know. So I really had to really understand, go back to basics on well, what are my values, what 
is important to me? What are my goals? You know, this is all really fundamental stuff, which kind of very well fits in with the very, uh, with the coaching piece. So as I was training in that, I was learning some of this stuff. I was learning about identifying my values. So my, my journey seeking out wanting to be a coach was very much aligned with actually, this is what I need. I need to find this out for me. You know, a lot of the healing professionals are actually on that journey because they need to do find the answer for themselves first and foremost. And that's definitely what's defined me in my journey. And, and this is what started me off on my own journey of shifting careers and shifting into a new line of work was was needing to find answers primarily for myself. And as I found those answers, I was able to then share those as, through my work, through people that were two or three steps just behind me on a similar path. So, um, so yeah, those two years was very much dabbling, exploring, wrestling. So I discovered the Hoffman process and I I did that. And I think the way that I would describe the Hoffman process is when I was looking to go on holiday and I was like, oh, I need something a bit more hardcore. So I was just Googling, looking for something. And I think I just found it through Google. And I decided it was pretty expensive for me back then, but I decided that this was, this was my one shot at kind of finding sanity again and finding, coming home as it were in my, to a you know, coming home to myself in a sense of being happy with who I was. I would describe Hoffman as being basically, it kind of breaks you down to the the, the, the the bare bits of what you're made of. And it's brutal and raw, but it's powerful and amazing. And it's such an incredible process. But when you come out of it, or at least when I came out of it, um, I felt like my shell had just been put back. It was still very delicate. It wasn't very solidified. You know, it wasn't strong. It's like you've just been glued back, but the glue is still a bit gooey. It hadn't dried and set, you know. And um, and I felt like I was still quite delicate for a while after Hoffman. So it wasn't my, it wasn't total healing for me. It was a very important step, but it wasn't the thing that that set me on the path of happiness. It was the thing that stopped me sinking into a spiral of a yuck, but it wasn't the thing that kind of made me properly whole, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, somebody told me about a course I needed to go on um, they said, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And um, it's the first course. He's he's come up with the technique and it's the first course. You've got to come on the training. And th- that moment when she, we were having lunch and I will remember this moment forever because it's such a clear moment. I felt when she was telling me I had to be on that course, I felt like God, if I believed in God, was booming down at me, pointing his finger going, you will be on the course. This <laughs> is your moment. <laughs> You know, and I was like, I've got to be on this damn course. Like, I felt like this was a defining life moment for me that I had to be on the course. And I called the guy and I was like, I can't afford the damn course. He's like, don't worry, you don't have to pay me. Just pay me when you've got the money. I was like, okay, this is the universe making this easy. And I went on the course and it was life changing. It was a new therapy. It completely started to fix me in a way in where it basically picked up where Hoffman left off and was start. And I, tried a lot. Believe me, I've been, you know, I've been to Tony Robbins events. I've done Reiki. I've, I've chased everything to fix, not fix myself. I hate the words fix, but to address how I was feeling. I've tried loads of stuff. Um, and when on Hoffman, you, they, you're exposed to lots and lots of Tony. So I feel like I have really tried a lot of stuff to address my crap, you know, and this was the stuff that really made the difference. This is stuff that was having impact really quickly. And this was life-changing for me. Um, and I went on to, because of my marketing background and the way that I, I spoke about what I'd learned and how I expressed, how I needed to express it to my clients to continue, you know, to sell what I'd just learned. Um, the founder, we partnered together and we started training other people in it together. So I, I ended up becoming one of the sort of leading trainers in the world of this technique now. And it's, it's now what I 
continue to do today. And it's what I've adapted to my current work. Um, so it's very much, that was a very much life-defining moment. And it was a life-defining moment that was as a direct result of my grief experience that has now turned into my life's work of what I do today. When I say I'm enormously grateful for my loss, I really, truly am, because I'm now doing work that is has meaning and that I adore and that is really if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I know my work here is done already. I've, I'm, I've done it. I, I have no regrets. And I, for that, I'm grateful. People never, some people never have that in their life. So I'm searching for gratitude in, in, in the ways that I can because, because I think that's an important way of dealing with what you're dealt personally. I see this pattern come up a lot in grief where loss happens and you get, you don't even really get asked if you want to go on the search, you kind of get forced to search uh, for answers and for meaning and for stability and everything after grief happens. And then there's this process of finding as well. You're kind of trying on these different modes and modalities and coaches and books and ideas and say, what will help me? What will bring me through? What were some core things that you found that you never lost in the first place? What happened as part of my own grief process is that, and then as part of my own rebuilding and the work that I did through things like the Hoffman and the technique that I learned was I became more me. So, you know, when you said it, I didn't lose it in the first place. No, I didn't lose that stuff, but I was just my core essence, my core truth, whatever you want to call that, my who I was, was being clouded so much by all the conditioning, everything that, you know, when you're a 20 year old and late 20s, you, you don't not many people know who they are at that point. They're still figuring things out. So I, you know, at 30, I was still figuring some stuff out. And then suddenly I get this, this event that kind of spirals me out. And, and when I came out the other side, my other half, he just said, you've just, you're just more you. And and that feels like a really nice way to kind of express it, that I'm just a highly more, a more concentrated version, less of the crap, you know, less of the distraction, less of the head trash, less of the fears and anxieties and confusion and conflicts all that stuff that kind of masks who you are and and prevents you from being fully authentic and being on your path or aligned, whatever, however you language that, that was coming back to me. It was actually just being more me. I want to bring in your podcast and the work that you do now, because I know I, I, I introduced you at the start of this show in Fear Free Childbirth and the concept of tocophobia and having home births and just birthing in general. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? And then I would love to talk about how your loss affected you and your kids and your idea of being a mom as well. Mm. So yes, yeah, so my work today. So when I first um, discovered this technique that kind of was life-changing for me, I, I described the experience of using this technique as clearing my head trash. That's kind of how it felt. And so my first podcast was called The Head Trash Show. And I built a business called Head Trash. And I was a head trash clearance coach and business coach. And so I was very much doing all that stuff. And when I first found out I was pregnant for the first time, I was hugely fearful. In fact, when I first was pregnant, I had a miscarriage at eight weeks. And the shock of finding out I was pregnant, which wasn't a planned pregnancy. And so I was, I really didn't take it very well at all. In fact, I got a photograph of me within two or three minutes of discovering, looking at the pregnancy test. And it's not a pretty photo. Um, it's not a person of somebody who's delighted at being pregnant. <laughs> it's somebody who looks like they've just had really bad news, which I had. And when I miscarried, I was relieved. And I knew when I experienced that relief that something wasn't right. And I didn't know what that was at that time. But I knew that that was a cue for me to do some serious soul searching, because what kind of response is that? 
that is not a healthy maternal response. And so during the year that followed that miscarriage, I basically used this head trash clearance technique on me and all my stuff. So I worked, this is where I really started motoring in terms of getting back to me from the grief. This was that year where I really started feeling better properly. Um, And then when I got pregnant again, I was well, I was feeling better about the pregnancy, but I was still really terrified of birth. And and I used this technique to clear my own fears of birth. But what I didn't realise at that time was that having huge fears of birth, so the fear that I had of birth, I basically couldn't open my birth books and read about birth, especially the pages of my book that had a birth canal in it. They'd make me have a panic attack, so I couldn't even look at the pages. I'd have to close a book. If I was on the, the underground train in London, for example, because I'd be there quite a lot, if I read a story about a woman giving birth in a taxi, which happened to me once, I just burst out crying on the train, not knowing why. I couldn't <coughs> I couldn't bear to the idea of a baby moving in my tummy. I felt like an alien, a parasite. I was it would freak me out. So that that was basically what was going on in my mind. And it was very difficult that first trimester. But I happened to be doing some advanced training in this technique. So I was able to just, you know, go, oh, we're gonna practice the next stuff and we need to work on a fear. So pick a fear, get into pairs, you know. So I was just telling everybody about my fears in a very supportive environment. And I was very lucky. A lot of women who are pregnant who share their fears don't get the opportunity to do that in a very supportive environment. And so yeah, I was able to work on those. And and so I ended up discovering a thing called hypnobirthing, which is a great birth prep technique. And in my research, I learned the link between fear and pain in birth. And I realized pain was my biggest fear. And so that really prompted me to go, well, you know what, I'm going to use this technique I've just learned to clear my own fears. And I'm just going to do it that way, make my own version of hypnobirthing. And that's what I'll do. And in about two months, I cleared all my fears. And I decided month seven, I'm going to ditch my C-section plan, hospital birth plan, and I'm going to go for a home birth because I, I can do this. This is fine. And that's what happened. I had an amazing home birth. And I didn't think anything of it. I created um, a couple of you know audio tracks and things, so I needed them to help me clear my own stuff. But I didn't do anything with it because I didn't realise at the time that this was a thing that other women experienced. I thought I was a weirdo. I thought that women didn't experience this. This is just me. So I didn't do anything with it until pregnancy number two, where I had loads of new fears because I was an older mum this time, and I had the prenatal depression thing going on. And so I, I went back to my earlier work for my first pregnancy and did it all again. And when I gave birth, I had emails from women who I didn't know, who'd heard about my journey, which I find quite incredible. I, I, I find it difficult that people talk, were talking about my pregnancy journey like this, going, oh, you need to get in touch with Alexia because she's just had an amazing birth twice. And she was really scared. You need to find out what she's done. So I was getting these emails from women going, what did you do? And what I did isn't, a, I couldn't just write a paragraph to tell them what I did, because it was more than that. It was, I had to unpack it all. I had to, there was a technique. I, I adapted a therapy to make it a DIY version. So, you know, when I started, I don't know, I must have written a good handful of emails. I'm breastfeeding now with a three-week-old at this point. I'm like, you know what? It's going to be quicker to write a book. So I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so this is when I started writing my book and I got the first draft done in like two months. And that was channeled, that book. So when I was in my head trash business and I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book, it's going to be a business book to help business people clear their head trash. And it ended up being a book on pregnancy and birth fears. I didn't choose to write that book. I started, I wrote the first chapter was my business head trash book. And it just became, my aunt spoke to me again, my spiritual mentor went, oh, you need to write a book for pregnant women. I'm like, you're joking. Like, seriously, I'm a business coach. This is a ridiculous idea. But yeah, next day, what am I doing? I'm writing a book for women on their fears of birth. Within two months, I'd written 80,000 words. It just happened with a new baby. 
And this is the book that I'm about to come bring out. And so I had this book and I'm a business coach. I'm like, Lex, what have you done? You've got like, you, you coach men who are leaders of business and you've written a book on pregnancy. This is not going to wash with your personal brand. Like, how are you going to handle this? So I thought, I know, I'll just bring a, a podcast out while I'm on maternity leave and keep it quiet. Yeah, and I'll get back to my head trash business once this is all out of the way. And the podcast just went a little bit crazy. I had my Head Trash Show podcast, which was very successful. It was at the top of iTunes, basically. It was dominating the top 10. I regularly had three episodes in the top 10. I was nominated for an award in Las Vegas. So in my mind, I had a very popular podcast. And yet the stats I was getting on the Fear Free Childbirth just completely engulfed what I was experiencing on the Head Trash Show. And I started getting emails from women all around the world saying, oh, I need more information. How would you do it? And they're telling me what they're thinking. And it really snowballed. And at some point I thought, I'm going to have to part my head trash business and give this a little bit more attention because women need this. Like I need to listen to what this audience is telling me because they want help. This is not, this isn't just me. I didn't realize how widespread fear in birth was. It's kind of created this whole new area of work for me that I never, if I, if you'd said to me three years ago, Hey, you're going to be working pregnant women. I've laughed in your face. You know, (laughs) I was coaching alpha males in business, business leaders. So it totally doesn't, fit with my plan, but not plan, but yeah, it wasn't on the, I definitely didn't see it coming. Let's put it that way. So yeah. So today I have my Fear Free Childbirth podcast. I work with women, fearful pregnant women, which includes tocophobic women. So that might, that might mean that women aren't pregnant yet, but are really fearful of birth, of pregnancy, can't cope the idea of being pregnant and, and need help and support in preparing. So it can be mild fear. It can be, you know, and so I might coach some of those women or it could be extreme phobia where, you know, I'm working with somebody at the moment and she's had two abortions of babies that she wants and she desperately wants kids. And, you know, the relationship is straining and it's really about getting rid of that fear so she can have the family that she wants and be happy again. So it, it's a really hardcore fear that isn't appreciated or people don't know enough about it and appreciate what the women that have it are going through, you know. Um, and so helping these women feels really worthwhile for me because it's life-changing, you know. I'm curious to know, where these childbirth experiences in your life came in in terms of timeline with your mom's death and then how you thought of her or if you thought of her during both of these experiences, like how she's influenced these moments in your life. That My aunt was basically calling to say, um, I was like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm just going to put myself on a water skiing holiday. She goes, you're not going on holiday um, because your mother's ill. We didn't know what she had then, but my aunt's got great intuition. And she, I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, you're not going anywhere. I was like, what do you mean she's going to be gone on my Christmas? So she said, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you're not going on your holiday. As it happened, she was gone seven weeks later. Um, and I remember one of the first things that crossed my mind sitting on the sofa, and I still remember this moment very, very clearly, was, well, who's going to be there for my kids and help me with kids? That was the first thing that hit me. And even though at that moment in my life, I was still like, oh, I don't know if I want kids. I don't like kids. Like, like literally, I was still on this, I was tocophobic, so I didn't want kids. <laughs> but there was a very clear, deep thing within me. Well, what, who will support me when I have kids? And so, yeah, being pregnant without a mum is tough and, and raising kids without a mum is tough, especially when you've got everyone around you talking about, oh, mum's coming over and da, 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 you know, this stuff. And you're like, yeah, I'm just doing all this on my own. I've got nobody to ring up in the middle of the night, nobody to support me. I'm literally making this up as I go along on my own. It's been very difficult being a mum without a mum. But, you know, that's my path. And, um, and and a lot of women have that path. Yeah, it's not been an easy one, but I kind of, I've, I've, I've stopped 
win- not whinging, but kind of thinking, oh, life's not fair. I, you know, that's I stopped doing that a long time ago because, yeah, no, life isn't fair. Just suck it up, buttercup, and just crack on with it, okay? Just do with what you've got. Actually, what I've been given as a result of my experiences, lots of strength, lots of trusting of my intuition and my ability to just focus on the important stuff, which is love. There really is nothing else. So that that's what drives me. How do you send love to your clients and through your podcast and your work? It's an interesting question. I think I'm present with what I'm doing. And so I I'm I, I always started doing it for the reason that I don't I generally wanted to help women shine like give them, you know, help them on this path. And I'm I'm still doing it for those reasons. Um I remember like the per- kind of person I was before my growth experience would have been, okay, because I was in marketing. Okay, let's identify an obvious market opportunity. Oh, look, and there's a need here. And let's try and exploit that opportunity for business reasons, which is awful. And that was who I was because I'd been trained. I'd gone to business school. I was in marketing. I was in corporate life. And that's why that that kind of rammed into you. I absolutely didn't approach what I'm doing today with that hat on. It was genuinely from a place of these women need to know this information because it can change their lives in a huge way. And I still want to share that in that same way with them because it really does. The difference between a positive birth experience and a traumatic birth experience is just staggering in terms of how that impacts that woman and how it's going to impact her until her dying breath. I had one incredible email from a lady who she emailed me saying, I think you saved mine and my baby's life. My baby's not born yet. And I was like, what? And she was driving in her car, I think 28 weeks pregnant or something like that, at night and listening to my podcast in the car and a car hit her from in front. And her (gasps) car, yeah, starts rolling down the hill. So she's tumbling down a hill. And at that moment in the podcast, I was saying how important it is for your baby, if you're in a stressed moment, to just maintain even breathings. If you manage to stay calm when it's stressful around you, that you can protect, you know, protect your baby in that way by just staying calm. Because if you get stressed, they get stressed. So just focus on your breathing and stay calm. And that's what I was saying. And that's what she did while the car was rolling down the hill. And then the car came to rest on its side or upside down. She had to wait 15 minutes from the ambulance. And she can, all, all that was working in the car was the podcast. And all she could hear was my voice keeping her calm. And when the ambulance arrived, they're like, this is a miracle. Like, not only are you, do you not have a scratch, but you are really calm. We don't need to take you in for observation. Your your pulse is fine. Like, this is a miracle. And she credits the podcast with helping her in that moment. And I just think that's just an incredible story, you know. Um, if that's not a testimonial, I don't know what is. <laughs> I know when I got that, I just, and then when she emailed me her birth story, I mean, I was just in bits. I just cry all the time when my listeners send me their birth stories and their pictures. And when they come on the podcast and share their birth stories, I'm always crying on my podcast because it's such a beautiful thing to help women have these amazing experiences that they will live with them forever and make them that, you know, when you have a great birth, it empowers you in so many ways and gives you confidence and like, you know, strength that you can take to other parts of your life. This is such an important, for me, it's such an important thing to help people with that. Um, and because of my own story of overcoming my own stuff, you know, it makes it a worthwhile, I'm a worthwhile person to help them with that. I definitely want to ask how you feel sitting in this chair right now, looking back at your loss at 30, mm. what about you is different and or 
if you had to send a message back to yourself at that time, what would it be about what the future holds for you? I think it's what, a message I still try and tell myself today, actually, which is trust things are going to be fine, you know, and I still wrestle with that today. It's just being trusting in the universe that things are going to be okay. You know, I still worry a bit that things aren't going to be okay. And certainly back then I would have been really panicking that things weren't going to be okay. Um, and, you know, I think the trusting, surrendering and allowing the control freaks in us always like to kind of make sure it's okay rather than just let go, lie back and allow it to be okay. And there's a very fine balance. There's certainly within the birth context, there's a very fine balance between being in control and letting go. And I think that applies to life where you kind of want to be in control of your life. You want to be driving it. You want to be doing stuff, but also there's a lot of value in just stepping back and allowing life to happen and surrendering to it and being taken by the current. Because sometimes the current could take you in interesting places rather than always being come to paddle. Uh, yes, that trust that everything is going to be okay. And it's not going to look like what you thought it was going to look like. And sometimes that'll tick you <laughs> off, but um, but it will turn out in the end. Um, so tell us, Alexia, where our listeners can get a hold of your podcast, this book that's coming up, any other resources that you would like to share with our listeners today? Um, so my birth work is, you can find that at fearfreechildbirth.com. If, you, if there's anything that's a bit broader, then headtrash.co.uk and the Head Trash Show podcast. And then the book Fearless Birthing is out in the next week, um, which is what we're looking at late October, early November 2017. I know the book that I wrote. So yeah, that's out. So Fearless Birthing is going to be out in print and ebook. um, Yeah, for autumn 2017. Um, And all information on the book is available at the Fear Free Childbirth website. Thank you so much, Alexia, for being a part of coming back today. Thank you for sharing your story and, of course, for continuing to do the work that you do with pregnant women and moms-to-be and, and their families and their families. Thank you for having on, Shelby. It's been an absolute pleasure. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Alexia Leachman, host of the Fear Free Childbirth podcast, for coming on to talk about grief and the process of becoming more of ourselves after loss. Alexia came back by going on an involuntary scavenger hunt of her own for her core truths, reading Eat, Pray, Love, and the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, attending what's called the Hoffman Process, and using what she learned as a coach to start healing herself and teaching others. You can find links to Alexia's childbirth website where you can find the Fear Free Childbirth podcast and news about her upcoming book over at fearfreechildbirth.com. If you're looking for her general coaching work, you can also check out headtrash.co.uk. Both of these websites are featured in the show notes. Join me on Facebook Live this coming Monday, October 30th at 1 o'clock Chicago time, where we'll be talking about how grief is an involuntary scavenger hunt. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always to Mr. Addie Goldstein who composed our beautiful theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am so proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. 
I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.